Welcome to the Happy Menopause podcast with me, Jackie Lynch, registered nutritional therapist and founder of the Well, Well, Well Nutrition Clinic, where I specialize in women's health and the menopause. There are so many ways that diet and lifestyle can help to relieve a whole range of menopause symptoms. And my new book, The Happy Menopause, Smart Nutrition to Help You Flourish, is packed with practical nutrition advice to support you through this transition. It's out now and available to order in all the usual places. Join me and my expert guests on a journey through midlife in this podcast and find out how you can have a healthy and happy menopause. Our family doctor is at the heart of the community and the first port of call for health advice, support and treatment for us and our loved ones. But even before the restrictions around the pandemic, that had become more difficult. With appointments often limited to 10 minutes, and a one-problem, one-appointment policy in many surgeries. What does the menopausal woman do if she's struggling with multiple debilitating symptoms? And how does she make herself heard? I've come across so many examples of women feeling that they've been dismissed, ignored, and simply not listened to. And it's really heartbreaking to hear those stories. So today I've decided to tackle the doctor's appointment. How to get one, and how to get the most out of it so that you get the exact support you need. But first, I'd like to give a quick shout out to my sponsor, Emmapel, who make it possible for me to produce this podcast. Many women notice that their skin becomes drier, less firm or more wrinkly as they transition through the menopause. And this is due to the decline in estrogen, which affects collagen levels. So here's where Emmapel can help with revolutionary skincare products that target the root cause of menopausal skin ageing by encouraging the skin to act as if the oestrogen was still there. The technology awakens the skin's messaging system so that the cells work more effectively and behave like younger skin cells. Emmapel's gorgeous serum and night cream are also packed with skin-friendly ingredients to make a tangible difference to the health and appearance of your skin. Believe me, a little Emmapel goes a long way. You can get 20% off if you use the promotional code HAPPY20 at emmapelle.co.uk. And so on to today's episode. With a subject like this, who better to call upon than the nation's favourite GP, Dr Dawn Harper, who's worked in the NHS for over 30 years. Possibly best known for her role in the BAFTA award-winning series Embarrassing Bodies, Dawn is a very familiar face on our TV screens, commenting on medical matters. She's also the author of 12 health and well-being books. But most importantly, she's still a practising GP, or family doctor as it's known in some countries, serving her local community. So there's no one better to give us the inside track on how to manage the conversation with your doctor. Let's find out what advice she's got for us. Welcome to the Happy Menopause, Dawn. Thank you, Jackie, for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. And before we get into all the wonderful things I want to ask you about how to manage your GP appointment, I want to find out a little bit more about you. So can you tell the listeners your story? I mean, what's your background and how did it lead to to where you are now? I come from a completely non-medical background. In fact, I think I'm the only Harper to have gone to university. (laughs) So it all started at the age of 12. I was 
rushed into the Royal United Hospital. They were terribly worried about my appendix and I had my appendix removed. And in those oh. days, of course, you, you spent a few nights in hospital. And I remember watching the doctors and the nurses in this sort of old fashioned nightingale style ward and, and seeing them kind of walk working away at two and three and four in the morning uh, and thought it was terribly glamorous. Uh, of course, you know, fast forward a few years when I was actually doing it, it didn't feel quite so glamorous at two, three and four in the morning. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I, I came out of um, hospital and I said, I want to be a doctor. Uh, and everybody sort of said, yes, dear. Uh, and interestingly, I, my parents were called into the headmistress of my school. Um, and when we were choosing in those days, O-level subjects and subsequently A-level. Oh, yes, I remember yes, those. Yes, sign of my age. And um, uh, and my parents were told that they were pushing me into uh, the wrong career path uh, and that I was a linguist, not a scientist. Uh, and mum and dad oh. had to say, look, this is, this is nothing to do with us. This is completely driven by Dawn. And my German teacher tried very hard to persuade me uh, to stick with languages. And actually... When I then became a doctor and then started doing media, I remember when I wrote my first book, I actually mentioned her in the foreword and said, you know, I remember as a 15-year-old, you tried so desperately hard to persuade me I was a linguist, not a scientist. And uh, like any self-respecting 15-year-old, I, of course, knew better and <laughs> completely ignored <laughs> you. Uh, but now, actually, um, I have to confess that I spend as much time talking and writing and communicating about medicine as I do actually practicing it so perhaps you had a point and I tracked her down and I sent her a copy of the book she is now 83 and I see her at least once a year and we go I go down and and have supper with her with some of the old members of our German class uh, and it's lovely to be back in touch with her and she and she still says she thinks I should have been a linguist <laughs> So you were obviously very driven and very inspired and determined from the start and you went off to study medicine. But what drew you to general practice in particular? Because that was very different from your hospital experience, of course, as a teenager. Yes. And actually, I'd love to tell you that I had this calling into general practice. The truth is I did a lot of medicine and I became a member of the Royal College of Physicians and did a lot of cardiology and then started being drawn to intensive care, which meant that I needed to go back and also get some postgraduate qualifications in anaesthetics. So I was doing that and and then fell pregnant with my first child and this is going back in the days when we would be working 100 plus right. hour weeks and also to to train in that I would have needed to commute to uh, hospital uh, training hospitals so that would have been from the Cotswolds I would have either been commuting to Bristol Cardiff or Birmingham bases and it became obvious to me actually Jackie that this just wasn't conducive to family mm -hmm. life um, and and so I made the decision to move into general practice really as a family yes. motivation rather than a career move as it turns out I absolutely love general practice and I now look back and think actually I am better suited to this this is you know this was somebody up there yeah. who was saying like, do you know what this isn't for you girl you know you're going that way instead um so it, it was a move that kind of wasn't necessarily a, a drive in the first place but it's a move that I'm really glad mm. on. I think sometimes life has a way of working itself out doesn't it so it was obviously the right thing for you 
But of course, you're also a very familiar face to, to lots of us with your media work on programs like Embarrassing Bodies and um, or providing yeah. medical advice on various magazine shows and so on. So how did that come about from the, you know, the general practice to, to the media? <laughs> yeah. Well, to, uh, to cut a very long story slightly short, I've always done other things alongside general practice. So I've always done other bits and pieces. And uh, I was approached by a local company who were doing a website and they wanted a female doctor to answer medical queries. And then on the back of that, uh, I was asked by a journalist to write for a women's magazine. She moved to another magazine and so I stayed writing for the original one and she asked me to write for hers as well. So I was starting to do some some writing work. And I remember ever so clearly, Jackie, she phoned me up a few months into my second magazine and said, um, Channel 4 want to speak oh. to you. Uh, and I said, oh, gracious, no, no way. You know, I don't do cameras. Uh, the only photographs of me would probably have been on our wedding day kind of thing. So I completely dismissed it. And then joking and laughing with friends and family and work colleagues, I said, you won't believe what happened to me this week. And everybody said, well, why don't you? You should do it. And so I kind of, I thought, well, I don't know whether I want to do this or not. But what I do know is I don't want to look back and do the what ifs. Yes. So I phoned her back and said, okay, look, I'll speak to them. And I had this screen test and the producers said, it terribly kind of TV and um, lovey-dovey and, oh, you're fabulous and this is your job and you need to get an agent. And So a week later, she phones me up and says, I found this agent who would like to meet you. And I'm kind of thinking, oh, wait, whoa, this what's is going on here? <laughs> so I go to meet this agent and she says, this is our terms. And once you get the contract, let us know. And two weeks later, I'm riding the crest of this very exciting wave and thinking, wow, I don't know what's happening here. And then two weeks later, I get the thanks but no thanks oh. phone call from the, the production company. And I phoned my now agent and said, this is what's happened. And she, bless her, actually, this is quite a cute story because she said, look, I really think you've got it, actually. I think you've got a career in television and what I suggest you do is just go out and get some experience um, and why don't we touch base in six months time so I took her at her word and I started volunteering to do some tele interviews and, and so on on breakfast television and that kind of thing and I recorded it all and sent it to Debbie and she said she would sign me um, and when she got me at my first book deal I dedicated it to her and said, you know, without whom this book would still be a twinkle in my eye. So, you know, thank you to my agent. And she phoned me, but she said nobody's ever dedicated anything like this to me. And I've looked after all sorts of people. And I said, well, Debbie, you know, you believed in me when I had nothing. And she said, well, Dawn, she said, I feel such a heel because I say that to everybody, just to let them down lightly. And you were the only idiot that took me at my word and did it all and she said she said and as soon as I got this DVD of your best bits and thought my oh my word what is you know this woman is going to make it in telly if she's prepared to do that so that was the story so it was a kind of an accident in a oh. kind of way and but I love it Jackie and I love both sides and actually the two jobs gel really mm. well because um being in the media means that I am kept up to date with what's going on, which is great to feed back into my surgery and to my patients. But also being a grassroots GP, which let's face it, is my yeah. day job that yeah. I really do, also allows me to keep in touch with what real people yes, really Yes, absolutely. Have. 
So let's drill down into that because you know the the whole theme of today is how to get the most of that sort of ten minute appointment and what can you do. But yeah. often the hardest thing is to actually get the appointment in the first place. So yes. <laughs> I know they're doing a really important job. I do recognise that, but it's some times really can feel impossible to get past the receptionist so any advice on that okay. first phone call yes I, I do get that I sometimes um, I've had patients tell me they think it would be easier to get an audience with the queen <laughs> which is slightly <laughs> worrying I think so what I would say is the first thing is I know our receptionists sometimes are kind of referred to as rottweilers with lipstick and <laughs> some people find it quite difficult to get past one of the first things I'd like to say is I think most people don't realize that our reception staff are bound by the same rules of confidentiality as the clinical staff and when they are asking you what the problem is it's not because they're being nosy and they absolutely can't tittle-tattle down the pub or the cafe you know that this is all very confidential but what they're really trying to do is to help navigate you through the best pathway through the practice mm. so it may be for example it might well be if you were phoning my surgery, for example, they would know that I have a specific interest in women's health. Now, it's not always the female doctor. Sometimes it can be a male doctor. So you might naturally all say, right, I want to speak to the lady doctor. But it's always worth just asking the reception staff, who's the best person to see for yeah. eggs? Uh, so if you were needing a joint injection, for example, I would absolutely steer you away from me because we know that the more injections you do, the better you are at doing them and so I would steer you to the one doctor that does most of our injections in our practice if it was menopause you'd almost certainly be directed more my way mm. so I think asking the, the the reception staff who is the best person to see and that may mean you've got to wait a little bit longer but actually you can use that time in in a very efficient way uh, Sadly, we went to the heady heights of 12-minute appointments a couple of years ago, but that's still not a lot of time for you to be able to explain everything you're worried about. I've then got to drill down. I might need to examine you, documented on the computer, explain next steps to you and so on. So actually, just trying to really drill down um, what it is you're worried about, how long it's uh, been going on for, and and, and almost like in a bullet point form mm. so that you've got a very clear and you can get your message over in as succinct a way as possible which gives us more time to then drill down further ask more questions focus on specific points um so use that time um and then think about what makes it better what makes it worse what you've already tried yes um, that's a useful one isn't it think about what you want from the appointment so you know do you want a referral if you want a referral, say so. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that your doctor will agree. They might say, well, actually, we need to do X and Y first. But OK, you know, and if you think if you're terrified it's cancer, say so. Um, I kind of have a three strikes and you're out sort of rule. And, and that basically is if somebody comes back to me three times with the same thing. I start thinking I'm missing something here. Mm -hmm. Do I need to ask somebody else? And a classic example is the cancer fear. I will say to somebody, you know, it's this. And then on visit three, I will say, you know, for example, I might say, so, you know, is there anything in particular that is worrying you about this? Or, you know, what, what, what's worrying you? What, what's your, what are your fears? And they, they might say, it's not cancer, is it, doctor? 
And I think, oh, goodness me, you could have come another 10 times. And it's so obvious to me that it's not cancer. Yeah. I would never have mentioned the big C. So absolutely say it. And yeah, and be clear about what you want. And the other thing I would say is be very clear about next steps. You know, I, I try very hard to make sure that people know exactly what we're doing next. So I might give you treatment A, uh, but it's really important that you know that you might need to take that for a month or two before you're going to notice much of a difference. Or you need to know what things you need to look out for when you're coming back to me. Is that by telephone or is it face-to-face or is it a video link uh, and what you should be concerned about? So, and, and actually, I'm a huge fan of patients bringing somebody with them. Now, of course, the pandemic meant that was not practical and we asked patients to come on their own. But Jackie, you know, I can't tell you how often if a friend or a relative comes with an individual, how often they will interject and say something along the lines of, now, come on, you're not you're not really being honest here. It's And they'll look at me and they'll say, it's much worse than she's saying, actually. Mm-hmm. And I caught her in tears just sobbing last night. And it's a very English thing. You know, we wait for this yeah. appointment, we're desperate for help, and then we get terribly stoical about it all. So it's really useful, you know, when times allow to bring a friend with you. And they also can jot down things whilst you're talking. When you're in a medical situation, I think a slight sort of fear and panic can take over and and your memory might just sort of completely let you down. And of course, for women in midlife, you've already (laughs) got got many issues. Absolutely, it can be a real issue. So I think that that taking of notes is is a really sensible idea. And bringing notes to the appointment. So write down the questions that you've got. You know, and make sure that you get the answers to all of them. Or, or it might be that I might say to you, I can't answer that one today, but you know, what we're going to do is we're ch- going to check out this and that, and then we'll get the answers. So, so it's just preparing, mm. I think. That's interesting. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges of the menopause, of course, is the symptoms are so many and varied. And I think women might worry that I think, well, I've got 15 different symptoms and I've only got 10 minutes so which one do I mention what would you say to women in that situation so you often see notices in GP waiting rooms saying you know one problem one appointment sort of thing Mm. and and I know a lot of doctors say they don't like lists I actually don't have a problem with lists at all what I would say is you write write down all the things you're worried about but please do tell your doctor that you've got the list right at the onset of the appointment. So often I will spend sort of nine minutes chatting to somebody about the first thing they've mentioned and then they'll go, but actually that isn't really the main problem. <laughs> it's actually, but, but if you've got a list, you know, show it to the doctor straight away because it may well be, and particularly with the menopause, you might feel like you've got all these different symptoms, but so many of them might be absolutely menopausal and um, and as you've just said you know, the menopause is it's very different our every woman's experience of the menopause is different yeah. just like every woman's experience of pregnancy is different and even you know I've had three pregnancies and I had three very different experiences that yeah. was me you know and yeah. um, so everybody is different and I liken when I talk to women about the menopause and and how we're going to manage it I liken it to choosing the little black dress Okay, there are hundreds of styles of little black dress. There are 70 forms of HRT, never mind all the other things that we might do apart from HRT. Mm. So actually finding something that fits you, suits you, works on you, might be a completely different 
little black dress in inverted commas to what's going to work for me Mm. so actually it's really important that especially with the menopause is that you just spend some time thinking about what are the things that are really bothering you the most Mm. Um, find out everything you can about your family history because of course you know 20 years ago I couldn't do a surgery without talking to a menopausal woman. And almost overnight, women stopped coming in when we had the Women's Health Initiative and the Million Women Study. Yes. And the way the press handled those sort of scary HRT headlines meant that, honestly, overnight, women stopped coming in to talk to me about the menopause. That didn't mean they stopped suffering. It's lovely because the pendulum is starting to swing back and we are seeing, most surgeries now, I will see at least one menopausal lady who's just wanting to have that conversation. Yeah. And even if you think it's no way do you want HRT, it's not HRT or nothing. You know, there's so many other things that we can do. So absolutely, please come come and have the conversation. Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. And of course, there has been a big push in the media lately to bring HRT out of the closet because it has had a pretty tough 20 years. I think it's really important that women sort of understand all the options available to them and then make the choice that's right for them. One of the things that I often see either with people in my own nutrition clinic or sometimes I see various comments on social media, this sense that you know they, they summoned up all the courage to go off and see their, their doctor and then actually were told, no, they couldn't have it or they weren't menopausal or they were too young or they were given antidepressants. And there's sometimes a sense that the, the GP isn't really listening or perhaps not hearing them. So what what would you advise women in that particular situation? I think I would probably go back to my asking the reception staff who you should see. Hmm. Because as, as general practitioners, we are generalists. But within that you know, whole sphere, I remember when I started doing live television, people were saying to me, you know, aren't you terrified? anything could come in and I said well that's my day job you know nobody says your nine o'clock has got period pain your 10 past nine appointment is a skin rash your 20 past nine is yeah it you just deal with things as they come through the door Mm. so we do all of us deal with everything but we also have our own little areas of expertise quite often for example in my surgery there may be somebody who sees one of my partners for their asthma or their diabetes or whatever but when it comes to women's health they might come to see me and that's completely appropriate so I would say so you shouldn't be shy about asking for someone different no definitely not it's absolutely appropriate to ask for a second opinion if if you if you you fear you're not getting anywhere yeah and I think you know women we're so concerned a lot of the time about not giving offense or I don't want to upset my doctor but (laughs) it's 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 presumably not something that anyone would take personally not at all I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't be in any way offended if patients that I see all the time go to see one of my colleagues with a problem that I know he or she is is better qualified to deal with so we Mm. absolutely wouldn't feel offended at all I think the other thing we tend to do as women Jackie is we do put our own health needs at the bottom of an agenda you know we're we're often worrying more about our partner or our children or our parents um, or even our work colleagues and friends and we tend to put our own needs down at the bottom of an agenda which is such a shame because actually if we are feeling well, emotionally and physically well, we are better parents, daughters, friends, 
you know, partners, yeah. colleagues, whatever. So I, I don't think we should feel guilty about actually mm. prioritising our own health. No, absolutely. But I see that a lot. I think, you know, women are hardwired to nurture and they're so busy looking after everyone else except themselves. Things can fall by the wayside. And often it's it's important to remember the old thing that you get on. You remember when we used to get on airplanes and travel those days? <laughs> they would always say, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first before yes. you help anyone else. And it's a little bit like that with your health, because even if you're not used to putting yourself first, just remember that you know, if you collapse, then everything else around you is probably going to collapse as well. So, you know, do it for them if you won't do it for yourself. You mentioned earlier that there are multiple different forms of HRT. So I think it's important to just flag here that if the first one you try isn't working, it's about coming back and and getting that tweak. Absolutely. What I do try to encourage women to do, unless there are very significant side effects, is I try to encourage women to stick with one form for, say, two or three months, because it can take up to three months Uh, for some of the so quite often things like night sweats and flushes respond very quickly Mm. to HRT uh, but it can take longer for the sort of memory fog and the the emotional stuff and the the, the lack of confidence and so what we try to do is we try to stick with one for a reasonable amount of time otherwise you can sometimes be chopping and changing so quickly that it's not necessarily clear what's doing what yes. Um, yes but I usually when I start women on HRT I usually ask to see them in sort of four to six weeks after starting um just to sort of see how they're getting on mm, have a bit and of a debrief then, and, and I'm also a great believer in in anything really we start with the lowest dose that's effective yeah uh, so if we're not getting anywhere then we've got some wiggle room to change the dose mm-hmm. um, at that point yeah and some women will say to me well you know I I can't or I don't want to take HRT. And so there's no point in going to see my doctor. But that's probably not true. So what would you say? Absolutely not true. (laughs) Please come and have the conversation. It may be that actually once you've had HRT explained to you, that you might change your mind. But it's not about HRT or nothing. And there are other things that we can do. For example, there's a very old fashioned blood pressure drug that actually can be quite useful in some women it doesn't work for everybody but in Mm. some women it's quite good for reducing flushes right and so you know and that's not hormonal at all one of the last taboos i guess about the menopause is even with my embarrassing body's hat on i can probably count on the fingers of my hands how often women come in to discuss vaginal dryness. It's right. usually something that I talk to women about when I'm examining them for something else or yeah. if we're doing a smear and it is a, it's an uncomfortable procedure yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll often sort of say, you know, is sex uncomfortable? And it's very sad how often I'll hear, well, what's that? I mean, that <laughs> very, my, my husband or my partner is, is, is um, very patient, but yeah, we, you know, we've given up on that years ago or, well, yes, you know, it, it, it's and and that has had a huge impact on intimacy within a relationship. And we know that around half of peri and postmenopausal women will get a degree of vaginal dryness. And so often, I see women who've given up on any kind of intimacy because mm. of the fear of it leading to intercourse. And actually, that can often be managed either with um, hormonal pessaries or gels or a non-hormonal. Um, 
ointment that you can just buy over the counter. There's no hormone in it at all. Mm. And actually for mild to moderate symptoms can be really effective. So I think it's, yeah, it's not hormones or nothing. Yeah. And, yeah. and I would just say, and please don't be embarrassed. Believe you me, you know, we really have. So often people will book to see me and they'll say, I've waited to see you because I know you don't mind seeing the embarrassing stuff. And of course, nobody minds. You know, what, what Pixie and Christian and I did on embarrassing bodies was what GPs do up and down the country every day of the yeah, week. Absolutely. We just happen to have cameras in yeah. our consulting rooms. Um, but I think sometimes understandably you know if we're talking about an intimate problem we may feel embarrassed but you can bet your bottom dollar you won't be the first you won't be the last you probably um you know will have your gp will have seen or discussed whatever your problem is that week yeah um so don't be embarrassed jump straight in no it's it's absolutely true i, I frequently have patients who will um it, apologize for talking to me about their bowel movements and I, <laughs> and I want I need to know I want I will get the Bristol stool chart out and we'll look at the different types of poo yeah. it might be and and I do this every day so it frankly doesn't occur to me to be embarrassed but it's amazing well, how people really can feel very awkward about that totally and, and you know I do a lot of, of interviews and so on and my other half is not medical um and and he every so often will be on a um, train and I'll be chatting to somebody about vaginal dryness or vaginal mm. discharge or something and he's going <laughs> <laughs> and I'm completely oblivious to the fact that perhaps this isn't everyday parlance for most people but you know that's as doctors and like you say in your profession you know you talk about poo and yeah. that's and it's completely normal mm. um, so yeah I would like to encourage uh, women out there that honestly you can come straight out with whatever you want nobody's going to to drop a jaw or be shocked or surprised it's it's important that you you can feel that you can discuss anything with your GP yeah absolutely well let's talk about the diet and lifestyle because that of course is my thing um, and I know it's something that you are very sort of focused on as well so what advice do you give to your patients um, from that perspective when they're struggling with the menopause so the first thing I say uh, to women is that we are all far too politically correct to talk about middle age spread mm. uh, these days, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Mm. <laughs> you know, and we do. The, most women will find that they put on weight more easily, and they find it more difficult to lose around the time of the menopause. And we tend to put that weight on around our middle, which we all know is the unhealthy place mm. to, to put on your weight. So it is, and I acknowledge the fact that it's harder. Um, so we know that if you are exercising to the same levels and eating the same at 50 as you were at 40 you are likely to gain weight our metabolic rate slows down yeah so it is tougher it is more difficult uh, but equally the benefits that we can reap if we can try to doesn't tip the scales which <laughs> pardon the pun but you know what i mean yeah so um so but i'm, I'm very conscious that it's hard so i i often see people quite regularly. One of the things people worry about actually about HRT, funnily enough, is the weight gain side mm. of things. And I have seen women where we've weighed them and they've said, no, they don't want HRT. And they've come back, say, six months later, put on half a stone, and we've weighed them again. And, and we will you know, laugh at each other and say, no, if you'd started HRT, you'd have sworn black was white, that it yeah. was the HRT that had done that. So it is all about, and I'm a huge believer, Jackie, in small changes, you mm. know, small changes that are that you can fit into your lifestyle and that you like, <laughs> um, and 
Uh, and I also say, yeah. I don't know whether you'll agree with me on this, but I also say there is no such thing as a bad food. Oh. There are plenty of bad diets. So you know, if you, if deep down you're a chocoholic and you love your chocolate, if you say, well, I'm never going to eat chocolate again, I'm, I know it's bad for me, I'm going to cut it out. Human nature is that you will focus and focus and focus on chocolate until one day you just give in and you mainline chocolate. <laughs> so actually using chocolate is a little bit of a treat for yourself. I don't have a problem with it at all. Eating chocolate every day, I do. So I just think it's it's about, and I, you know, it's sad, isn't it? Because we have all mm. these celebrities endorsing these kind of crazy diets where you're going to drop a dress size by the weekend. And, and I've seen so many patients who have tried these incredibly restrictive diets, which are not compatible yeah. with normal life. So you can do it as long as you fall off the social stratosphere for a week or a month. And then, of course, you haven't addressed your your real issue and you go straight back to square one and yo-yo. So, yeah, I'm a real kind of small changes girl. Yeah, everything in moderation. Sounds sensible to me. Conscious that we're coming to the end of this, let's have a little chat about you and any exciting projects you've got on the go at the moment. Okay, so I'm actually very excited about a couple of documentaries that I uh, was making just before lockdown. And they're really interesting philosophy. So we worked on conditions that don't kill you. And actually, do you know what? Menopause could be one of, I could see me doing a documentary in this vein. Because these conditions don't kill you, they don't Mm. necessarily get the funding and the airtime and all the rest of it. Um, But they affect, um, and the two conditions I've, I've done so far are irritable bowel syndrome and migraine. I was going to say, I was thinking IBS. That's a classic one, isn't it? Yes. And those two conditions affect working age people. So actually, whilst they're not going to kill you, they can have a devastating impact on your quality of life. And where can people find you if they want to find out more about what you're doing? Uh, I would guess probably on social media. I'm at Dr. Dawn Harper on Instagram and Twitter. Well, I will put links to, to that and to your website as well on the show notes, which will be on the podcast page of my website so everyone can find it Thank nice you. and easily. And I'll also pop a link to your lovely book, which is How to Live to 101. Um, do you want to tell us about that briefly? Oh, I loved that book. Uh, so that was my 12th book, and definitely my most favourite one. Uh, I basically interviewed centenarians both in the UK and on the continent who were living life you know they weren't sitting in a nursing home waiting for God these were people who were out and about living independently some from very poor backgrounds some from very rich and privileged you know some urban some rural Uh, and it was lovely to hear their stories and of course we looked at all the obvious things like not smoking and not drinking too much and maintaining a healthy weight and exercising but we also looked at all sorts of other things as well when writing that book and so yeah I lo- really loved it and it's, it's full of very simple little tips which probably go back to my you know small changes that can make yeah. a big difference going forward so yeah so that was a great fun book uh, to Fantastic. write um, and the other thing I've been working on which is actually I think relevant for menopausal women is I've been working with a new app called Hidden Strength basically they are offering free one-to-one therapy for anybody aged 13 to 24 with mental health issues. Uh, A lot of women going through the menopause will have teenage children at home um, and we are seeing such a hideous rise mental health issues. So actually, that's that's a really lovely resource for our 
younger people in our yeah, lives. Yeah, for uh, the family. Mm. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, I am after your top two tips. Um, so through all your years of clinical work and everything you know, and perhaps your own experience as well, um, going through the menopause, what would your top two tips be for women? Do you know what they're going to be, Jackie? They're going to be talk and talk. We are much better. Our generation are much better than, say, my mum's generation were, but we've still got a way to go. Mm. And I think you know, talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your doctor. Nothing is out of bounds and everything. There's so much truth in a problem shared is a problem hard. Mm. Um, so communication, I think, is everything. Brilliant. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you today. So thanks very much for joining us and for all your fantastic advice. I hope everyone feels a lot more confident now about making that appointment and making the most of it as well. Thanks very much, Dawn. Thank you, Jackie. Lots of practical advice for you there. And I hope it's given you some food for thought on how to plan your next appointment. If you'd like to find out more about Dawn and her work, you can visit the show notes on the podcast page of my website, well-well-well.co.uk, where I've added links to her website, books, and the How to Stop Your IBS and How to Stop Your Migraine programme she mentioned. Later this month, it's World Menopause Day, so I'll be releasing two specials on this year's theme of bone health. So look out for those on the 18th of October. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen on. And make sure you tell all your friends. It makes a huge difference to the visibility of the podcast and really helps to spread the word. Because every woman deserves to have a happy menopause. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.